Clay. Hi, hi there, Melissa. This is our very first podcast. I'm super excited. How about you? I'm pretty excited. Why don't we tell our listeners a little bit about ourselves? I'm Melissa Kamara. I am recording from my closet here in Honoka'a on the big island of Hawaii. And I am a conservationist. My background has been in ecosystems management and endangered species, and most recently with fire. We're launching this podcast, Land and People, to explore the relationships of people and practitioners to the land. I'm also an artist, um, in addition to working in the field of conservation and fire. And I sort of take the approach of asking the questions about, you know, from the heart, I would say, um, which is a really fun mix because my colleague here is the scientist. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, put in a box. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I like it because he brings it back to like, let's just let's outline some, you know, historical details here. And I want to know some relational things. That's a little bit about what we're up to. Clay, you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Clay Chowernick. I'm a faculty at University of Hawaii, Manoa, broadcasting from Manoa in my office. Most of my teaching is done outside of the university with professionals in the conservation world. I've done a lot of stuff with fire management over the past decade here or so. And yeah, I'm sort of interested in the same the same things you are. I think Melissa, these bigger bigger picture connections that people have. What makes them kind of commit themselves to protecting the land in some senses, or just understanding what what's out there and what it is we should all kind of cherish? Want to add anything else? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. Just like to add, of course, that the views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of the funders, employers, or other organizations that we or our guests work with. Okay, so on to our very first guest. I sort of know of Bob by name only. I have never met him and I don't know a whole lot about his background, but I, I've seen some of the plants that have been named after him out and about in the forest. Well, yeah, he is a treasure for Hawaii, I would say, as a natural resource manager myself uh, coming up in the field in the 90s. He was the guy you wanted to talk to on Maui. And in fact, we, as we discovered, he has lived and worked all over the place. So it's just going to be so cool for our listeners to hear all that he's done in Hawaii and elsewhere, really. So he's kind of this bridge to really early kind of conservation efforts here in Hawaii. And, um, and like you said, he's kind of been a mentor to so many people in the field out there today. I'm just excited to kind of hear some of that that history. Yeah, I am too. We can't wait to share it with you all. There are some really interesting background questions. And then we get into some like time travel questions there towards the end and some stumpers. Um, so listen to the whole thing for those of you who are interested in Hawaiian conservation or, or if you're not, you just want to know a little bit more about uh, what was going on on the land in the 60s. This is the interview for you. The other thing I'll say about myself is I'm maybe the glass half empty person. Clay is the glass half full guy. And I, I, I really like that about. I want to 
I would have called it opposite. I feel like you're much more of a conservationist than me. Like if anything, I, I'm like a reluctant conservationist. I'm the guy. I'm like the heretic saying people should plant non-native species and do all kinds of weird stuff out there that just to sort of help uh, help make our jobs easier and our you know lives better. I, I yeah, I'm coming at this probably very pragmatically, but I, I make as in I'm interested in the history, um, in the context of fire. I think we talk about this. Just this idea that you know we sort of our baselines are constantly shifting as to how we you know perceive the the environment around us and really to check in with folks that have seen so much change um you know on the one hand it could be depressing because a lot of these things that Bob has seen, they're not out there anymore, right? Some of these plants and some of these uh, ecosystems have changed, you know, forever, uh, frankly. And so, you know, on one hand, you could say that that, that is kind of depressing and <laughs> maybe glass <laughs> half empty. But at the same time, it's like to understand that these changes have been happening since his time, right? And that, you know, and they're continuing to change and that so we always have opportunities to kind of intervene if we have to, but really, you know, make decisions that, that will um, kind of protect these resources that, you know, from the conservation side, again, that, that, you know, for our kids and their kids, hopefully to, to be able to go out there and check out and see and value themselves. So yeah, maybe I am an optimist. I don't <laughs> and with that, Robert Hobdy, retired Maui district forester for the department of land and natural resources, state of Hawaii. Yeah, welcome. Uh, thanks for taking the time, Bob, to uh, to chat with us. We really kind of have this same set of questions that we're trying to pose to folks. And really to start things off, would you not mind just telling us a bit about where you're from and kind of how or maybe who in your life connected you to the land uh, growing up? <clears throat> well, I've, um, I was born in Hawaii and raised there until I was about eight. And then we moved to Lanai and I grew up on Lanai. And Lanai is uh, a very um, rural kind of place. We all we all just live without very much technology going on. We we didn't have a TV or anything. As a kid, I was growing up always outdoors, doing stuff outdoors, and uh, yeah, it was a very country type of life. So I was connected with the land in that way. But as I spent more time growing up, I, I spent a lot of time with my father. We went out um, hunting and exploring on the island, fishing, camping on the beaches. A lot of the people that I was working with were uh, local people who were very uh, used to living off the land. As I grew up, I was doing everything outdoors. And when I was 15 years old, I had the experience with a, a botanist who came to the island. It was Otto Degener with his wife, who was also a botanist from Germany. They were going to spend a, a month and a half or so on Lanai, and they needed somebody to drive them around to different parts of the island. And I had just gotten my license. My dad had an old military jeep. He says, uh, why don't you drive them around? You might learn something. <laughs> And uh, so I did. I spent a, over a month with, with the Dagoners going around the different parts of the island. When they showed up, they asked me, where can you uh, take us where there's native plants? And I said, well, what's a native plant? <laughs> and he realized he had to back up a little bit. And he said, where have you seen some flowers along the road somewhere? 
I told him that uh, I had seen some uh, flowers along the road down to Manelli, the beach to Manelli. And he said, let's go. Let's go see. And so we drove down to the road that went down to Manelli Beach. And I saw some of these plants in, in bloom. And I stopped and I said, there, over there on the other side. And he looked at it. And then he, he said, uh, oh, that's a, a Lipikita. And he jumps out of the Jeep and he goes over and looks at it. And he calls back to his wife and says, Isa, come. This is such and such a variety of uh, Lipikita. I've not seen this before. And he was so excited. First thing he, he did, there was so much of it there. He started taking specimens. And he said, this specimen is for the New York Museum. He took another one and said, this one is for Berlin. Another one, this is for Paris. This one is for Bogor, Java. All of these these different places. And I was just dumbfounded. And then uh, he told me, I am doing this because during World War II, Hillebrand's collections in the uh, museum were destroyed during the, the war. And uh, he said, this must never happen again. So I'm spreading this stuff all over the world to museums. So that was my introduction. It just blew my mind. And he turned out to be a very outgoing teacher and he, he saw my interest and he, he just unloaded all this information on me as we went to different parts of the island and uh, so that was my my initial experience with the scientific side of, of the outdoors talk about the, a crash course eh yes yes it was got out of high school went to college on the mainland i took up forestry as my main subject. I, I did well in the dendrology classes just because of that background I had. And it wasn't until I came back to Hawaii and got a job with the uh, Division of Forestry, starting on uh, the island of Oahu. And I went into the office. Here I am, you know, what do you want me to do? And they, they sent me off to go over the Tantalus with a, one of the rangers. And we drove around the mountain, went up. The next day I said, well, what do you want me to do? He said, well, with the guy again. So we went around Tantalus. <laughs> I was going, I, I don't know about this. What year was that when you started? 1965. Wow. And uh, on Thursday, the state forester was named Max Landgraf. And he, he calls me into his office and he says, boy, Bundy, you go Kauai. <laughs> Just like that. And uh, so I ended up on Kauai working under uh, Ralph Daler to uh, uh, recreation. We wanted to set up this little nature trail at a Boy Scout camp up in Kokei. And we needed somebody to come help us. And we called up the Bishop Museum and the they sent Harold St. John. He was a retired botany professor from the university, and he showed up on Kauai. He's an amazing man. He had graduated in uh, right about the beginning of World War One, and he was on the mainland, and he published something every year in his work, sometimes more than one thing, from 1914 to 1990. <laughs> it was just amazing. Incredible. And, yeah, and he, he went out with us and he identified these trees and shrubs and things in the forest. When he went back to the museum, he wrote me a letter and said he could see my interest. And he said, I'm working on the genus uh, Conavalia. Could you make collections of Conavalia in every place you've seen it on Kauai? This was probably about 1967, 
or 68, somewhere around there. So I went out and I collected a bunch of different Anavalias from different parts of Kauai and sent them to him. And he's all excited. And he got me collecting things for him. And he told me to keep a, a record, a journal with all the information of, you know, a numbered specimen, where it was from and what it, what was distinctive about it. I'd send him in packages of things I had collected out in the forest and, and collected things that he was looking for. And I think on the second batch of things I sent in, he found one of them that was a new species. It was the Wilkesia, and he named it after me. And he was really excited about that. He published it as the second species of Wilkesia. Bob, yeah. did that mean anything to you as a young person that you had a, a species named after you? Did that sink in? Well, or were you like, wow, that, this is strange, this whole naming thing? Well, I had some idea about it, but um, I didn't really understand the, the full range of what it meant, you know. So over the years, I continued to collect. Came to Maui in uh, 1971 and continued work over here. And that's about 4,700 specimens, I think, that I sent into Bishop Museum. Of those, 14 turned out to be new species. So it's been really exciting over the years to be able to contribute to science that way. Well, I'll say, you know, because you have such a, a legacy to give to us, the botanical specimens alone are astonishing. I'd love to hear what is one of your most cherished places and and why is it important to you? Well, like you say, it's really hard to pick out something that's, that's your favorite. But I would say some of the best stuff I've seen is in the West Maui Mountains. I did a lot of collecting up in there. You could go into some of these areas that had never had any pigs or anything in the forest, and everything was like pristine. It was still all this diversity, and I just got to the point where I understood enough about what I was seeing that my antennas would go up when I got into places like that. And it was just kind of an exhilarating feeling to witness areas like that that were the way that they'd been, you know, for thousands of years. As far as uh, habitats, I get that feeling in many places that are not necessarily in the wet jungles, but dry land forests, shoreline environments, you know, dry land areas everywhere. And when I see stuff like that, yeah, I get that feeling, you know. I wonder, I want to hear a little bit more about that because I wonder if in the more remote bog forest, do you ever get that feeling like maybe I'm the only one who's been up here? And then alternately, when you're in cultural places that have been so changed, do you get that feeling of cultural connection with the people who were there? Yes, I do. I'm very closely connected to the cultural places. One of my interests is learning the place names of all these places and, and understanding the meanings of those names, seeing remnants of former habitations people had. I don't know that I feel that I've been to places that the Hawaiians hadn't been to because they, they were everywhere. Their knowledge of the plants and animals, birds and everything was such they had a name for almost everything. They knew what that might be used for, whether it was something that you could eat or whether it was medicinal value or some kind of a fiber plant. But they just had a knowledge of this stuff that very much impressed me. The uh, sites that 
I've seen out in remote areas. Very exciting to, to look at and to understand. Try to put myself in a place and say, how did people live here? What did they do? Some of these areas, like in the, the dry coastal areas in East Maui, like Kahikinui, there's whole village sites that were abandoned back in the 1800s when cattle were introduced and they kind of destroyed what little people were surviving on out in that dry country. And uh, I'd get into one of these old village sites. The first thing I would do would be to say, where was their water source? There wouldn't be a village here if there wasn't a water source. And in those those areas, they had little seeps and stuff in caves and things that they got their water from. And some of them were fairly substantial, but they weren't obvious if you didn't know where they were. You know? But when I'd find that, I'd, I'd say, yeah, OK, I understand how people lived out here like that. So I've been all over Maui and Lanai and uh, Kauai from when I was there for six years. And uh, and I've been over on the big island doing work over there and uh, Molokai quite a bit because that was part of our district here. Probably the island that I know the least is Oahu, but uh, there's still a lot of nice stuff on Oahu too. Hey, Bob, I have a question for you. Just thinking about your work with the vision of forestry and wildlife. What kind of transition did you see over your career from like within that agency going from forestry, that perspective of kind of like extraction and plantation kind of forestry towards protection? And did you you see the agency kind of evolve over the time you worked with them? Yeah. You know, when I first started in 1965, there was a cohort of older foresters. Most of these guys didn't have a forestry degree, but they'd worked their way up and were managing these places. But these people were all getting ready to retire at this point. But when they started back in the 30s, you know, or so, they knew personally some of the people that, that were there from the very beginning. Forestry Division uh, was created in 1904. A territorial forester that was first hired to run that program was Osmer, Ralph Osmer. And uh, he spent 10 years in Hawaii. And during that time, his focus was to create forest reserves, to fence off forest reserves, and to eliminate huge numbers of feral goats and sheep and wild cattle that were really destroying the forests. That destroying effect was what got the territorial government to create the forestry division back then. And so they were out there uh, fencing and shooting animals. And uh, during that short period of time, almost a quarter of the acreage of the entire state was placed in a forest reserve. You know, you think of that today. There's no way that could happen in our world today. No way. It's impossible. Yeah. (laughs) What foresight. Yeah. Don't say impossible. So uh, in those days, these animals were considered to be like vermin, you know. Um, They were rounding up, especially on the Big Island, enormous herds of goats and sheep and, and just killing them. And this went on until during the World War II. And prior to that, uh, there was this Civilian Conservation Corps, and they did a lot of work in the the mountains, providing uh, work for the young people that had no jobs during the Depression. And uh, but they still were fencing and, and killing animals. But when we got statehood in 1959. 
connected with the U.S. Forest Service, and the Forest Service came in to develop an office in Honolulu. They had no land themselves, but they were like supporting and, and uh, advising the local forestry people. They're the ones that got into the plantation mode. They were recommending bringing in what they thought would be good timber trees in the future. That was going on when I started. There was that focus, you know, clear land and plant trees that might be valuable for timber. That went on in the mid-70s, I'd say. And at that point, they kind of realized that Hawaii didn't have the kind of land that could uh, develop timber funding for that started to drop. When I started, the uh, the concept of native things was, well, a forester should know a few of the native trees, but don't get too wrapped up in that. <laughs> and uh, But I was out there collecting and, and finding all kinds of interesting stuff. And it, it, uh, I think I must have had some effect on changing the conception. Most of our funding goes to protective things now. I've seen tremendous change, you know, going back to from the very beginning to where we are today. Yeah, it's a very different world. We, we learned so much, you know, like the Division of Forestry was created to protect watersheds primarily, you know, for the plantations. And uh, now we, those are gone. And, you know, we were protecting them for their intrinsic value. Would you say that's well, what, what we are now? What I was getting at was that uh, we started to focus on the native stuff. And it became apparent that the very best watersheds were the native forests and vice versa. You know, you'd get a wonderful native forest if you protected the watersheds. Well, I have a question for you that gets to that. Where do you stand personally on the value of species, the value of watersheds? Well, I think they're valuable. Um, You know, they may not be directly economically valued at at a species level, but uh, the habitats are so important. You know, we've we've lost so much in the lower elevations, um, the coastal elevations, very little of that left dry forest, but we still have some pretty good music forests and uh, quite a bit of good rainforests still. But it's interesting that some of this stuff gets impacted by new things that come in, you know, like this rapid ohia thing. It's, it's, it just blows your mind to think that we could lose our, our ohias. You know, that would be a huge change in the in the whole ecology of, of the mountains. We have new insects coming in. We have new diseases come in. I, I got involved in Myconia project over here on Maui. You know, when they first found the Myconia out in uh, Hana, I realized what had happened in Tahiti. And this was on land that was below the forest reserve. But I told my boss, I said, we got to do something. We just got to do something about this, even though it's not on our, our land right now. It could be in a few years. And we started the Myconia project over the years, developed into the Maui Invasive Species Project. That became something that went statewide. Now we have these invasive species projects on all islands. And that's been a big, big change over the years, too. We haven't gotten rid of the Myconia, but there's like a whole whole boatload of other stuff, too, that's out there. 
part of the invasive species project. One of the realities of it is there are things that are beyond our control already. But what we should focus on is is trying to catch anything that comes in new and uh, looks like it's going to be a, a real problem to try to go out there and uh, knock it out. It's been very successful when the invasive species things first started, you know, in the Myconia project, the guys that were in the legislature that were funding these things were saying, well, when is this going to be how? How many years before we, we get rid of this, you know, and, and uh, we just had to say, we, we don't know. We don't know. But now the, the funding has uh, more than quadrupled as people have come to realize the impact of these invasive species efforts that have gone on. Uh, yeah. um, Bob, I want to dig into your your feelings about why people should care and mostly because, you know, the average person from another place is looking at the mountain going like, it's all green, it looks good to me. And then, then I'm thinking about what you said related to cultural values and how Hawaiians leave and then and now that these things are, are a part of us, they're alive in a certain way. And how do we bridge this gap between things, you know, existing to exist and then this mindset of it's all green and that's fine. I'm sure you've gotten that over your career. (laughs) Why should I care? What do we tell people? How do we, who don't necessarily have that established time with things that some of us do? Well, education and mentoring. That's something that I've, I've tried to do over the years. And uh, some of the people that I met when they were young people in the Sierra Club and different projects like that go into remote areas and work on, on projects. And a lot of these people are now very prominent in, in the field. You know, we have uh, Art Medeiros and uh, Sam Gahn and some of these people that uh, are now in the vanguard, so to speak. You know, I'm kind of the old guy now. You know, I, I, I don't have the physical capabilities to, to do some of the stuff that I used to do. I was all over the mountains. I do my job in forestry and then on some of the long weekends and stuff, I do stuff like uh, hiking from Kukui all the way down to uh, the Lahaina side, Olawalu, down some ridges. Uh, yeah, you go in some of these places, you go, uh, I don't know if anyone's been here before, but, but I suspect there probably was. But uh, we're going down Koolau Gap from the crater down through the jungle down there and seeing some of that country. Uh, yeah, I had I had some... Uh, heroes that I looked up to. They weren't necessarily, you know, highly educated people, but they were people that spent a lot of time in the mountains. Lawrence Oliveira, he was just an incredible guy. He worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps back in the 30s, late 30s. He lived in Nahiku during the CCC time, but there would be a truck that would pick up all the CCC guys on, on a Monday. They were working in the Koolau Gap on a, a little shack up in there. So they'd pick up the guys in Hana and they'd pick up guys in Haiku and come all the way around up to the crater. And then they'd hike down into the crater and across to, the, to this cabin site. Lawrence didn't like doing that. He hiked up from his house through the forest all the way up to the north rim of the crater and went down the, uh, the Crystal Cave Rail to where this cabin site was. And he would get there before the guys showed up, you know, incredible. I mean, he, he went up like 7,000 feet and then down through the crater. Guys like that, he, they'd seen it all. They knew it, knew the country. And yeah, I really looked up to those folks. 
I have another question just tied probably back with your work earlier work we were talking about with uh, Division of Forestry and Wildlife and kind of my, my professional interest is, is pretty closely tied to fire. And I was just wondering if you had some um, just insights or stories that come to mind. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some incredible things. And I, I'm also just curious about, I know fire was sort of part of the agency's development and like formation way back. And was that fairly consistent while you worked there as far as DOFA's role in responding to the Division yeah. of Forestry's role in responding yeah. That was a big part of our uh, responsibilities. And uh, we'd have our other jobs but when there was a fire. You drop everything and, and jump on it, you know. And uh, we fought many, many fires. I'd say it probably been on uh, 50, 60 fires over the years. Uh, many of them in West Maui, above Malaya, that burns every few years. Even going to different islands, we'd go over and help uh, big island people on a big fire over there. Uh, did a lot of fire stuff on Molokai. Uh, some of those fires were quite large. Uh, on Molokai, we had one fire that burned 14,000 acres. And I looked at it on a map and I, I calculated that it was 10% of the island that had burned, you know, from uh, Kanakakai all the way to Cabela, all the way up into the forest. Learned a lot about fires and about how they start and uh, how to attack them. Because uh, a lot of the stuff that we dealt with was in uh, remote areas. The early years, the fire department was mainly concerned with structural fires, you know, in the middle of towns, you know, and stuff. And uh, when they came up against uh, stuff that was not in our forest reserve, but was burning like above Kihei or somewhere, they would uh, call us up and, and say, help. <laughs> and we'd go out there and help them. And uh, the, over the years, we got them to be trained to do wildland fires. And they pretty much handled that stuff now except on big ones and they call us in. Uh, I learned a lot of stuff about fires and uh, one of the things that became apparent was once an area burns, what comes back is even more flammable than uh, what was there before. Up above the uh, Kihei area we fought fires up in there and uh, there's a lot of Kiave up in there and these fires would go through and they kill a lot of the Kiave because they couldn't handle it. Some of these trees were just standing dead all over the place and then it burned again and those trees were now dry and they burned to the ground and you'd see these you could fly over it and see these kind of gray patches where these trees had burned right down to the ground and left a pile of ash there and yeah every time a place burns it becomes even more of a hazard there's a couple components of fire one is uh, risk and one is hazard a hazard is a lot of the fuels and stuff that's out there and then the risk is you know what's going to start them you know, and how and how can you do something about that just so interested in thinking or learning from you too about the changes that you've seen more in the lowlands right like oh as the plantations have gone out and it's sort of a message of been trying to get out there is that this is a big problem as far as making that job harder but uh, had you seen that sort of complications you know from changes in land use and kind of that shift away from agriculture was that was that occurring while you were kind of responding and what did you see that kind of the burden increase over time all for the firefighters yeah there's there's so many different effects of all these fires um, when they stopped growing sugarcane in the central valley of maui the whole area became uh, dry buffalo grass and uh, guinea grass and stuff but, uh, we had uh, one fire a few years 
years ago, it burned 9,000 acres in the Central Valley. And it started over in Waikapu and it burned all the way over to Bumpy Hay. And it was just, you know, I mean, these things on a windy day, they just take off. You have to be really careful as a firefighter. You have to have a, a route that you can get out of there in a hurry <laughs> if you need to. You know, it's it's bad enough when you're destroying stuff, but when you're killing people too, that's that's, that's a really nasty one. You see that on the mainland more. Um, they're learning how to create escape routes. Yeah, I think we've been pretty lucky in that regard, especially, um, you know, where you seem to have quick enough response by the county fire departments to get at least to the homes, you know, and then fortunately a lot of these fires, especially some of the recent ones on Oahu, you know, they'll continue to burn up the mountain and it's this capacity, right? Like at that point, it's really on the foresters and it's, uh, you know, it's a lot to, to shoulder. Some of the fires in the windy areas, they can move at uh, 15, 20 miles an hour. You know, it's just incredible, you know, and when that 9,000 acre fire happened, it shut down a couple of highways and uh, just completely freaked out <laughs> in the key area. You know, they thought it was going to just run right through their, their communities. But luckily it didn't. Now that the Mahipono people are gradually uh, creating agricultural stuff in there, it gets rid of a lot of that fuel. Um, I actually have a question for both of you that relates to fire. You know, with so much um, destruction we know in Hawaii, how do you both sort of stay grounded and resilient? Because we talk about resilience in our field of fire, but, you know, we're trying to build that into the next generation of conservationists, too. And this idea of like, you know, how do you just sort of be zen about it? Is there a way to be um, to look at things without being emotionally attached? I'm just curious, like what? do you both do to address, you know, these really serious issues that are emotional and rapid? Well, uh, you try to educate people. There's a lot of fires that happen, especially when uh, we get these strong winds. Power line goes down and starts something up. But most of the fires that have burned in the leeward West Maui were from, you know, you get these, these uh, certain weather patterns and they get a kaua winds that come down the valleys and hurricane force winds and they just knock those old lines right off of the, off of the post and uh, start fires. And uh, probably three quarters or even more of those fires that we fought between Malaya and uh, Lahaina were caused by power lines going down, you know. So there's some things like that that uh, are difficult to uh, predict. However, the, the new lines that have gone in with uh, big metal poles, uh, high tension wires, those things stand up really well to those winds. And by converting to those things from the, the wooden posts that just weren't able to stand up to that, you know, they, that makes a big difference with, with the metal poles. So the ignitions, you know, dressing the ignitions, gives you a sense of hope like we we could we could really stop for the big ones if we just deal with the ignitions well uh, you know you're never gonna stop it but uh, you can have a, a huge impact fire is uh it's a, it's a big enemy <laughs> when it gets going yeah it's a tough one to deal with and i think it's it's so immediate versus sort of these invasions that we see which you know you're sort of seeing slower degradation in some of these forest areas so it's hard especially for people coming up when they come in and they're learning about these forests and there's already clademia and things like that these weeds everywhere and then you see a fire impact this and it can be kind of dramatic had some gut punches where you see yeah. you know, big willy willy stands things like that that it done right one incident and, and it 
they're done. Um, I think for me, I just think about it to like frame fire in this longer term perspective. So speaking with folks like Bob helped me to kind of keep in mind that this has been an ongoing problem and people have been working on it for a long time. It's something that we will continue to work on. And I feel that every fire is really an opportunity to learn sort of what, what we can do better the next time, um, as well as like engage with a bigger chunk of the public. Right. And I think that's another thing that these fires uh, raise as a this opportunity to just say, hey, like, you know, our actions down here do have these effects further up in the watershed. Again, you know, they're not often catastrophic they, that these those fires do happen, um, unfortunately. But they, again, it's just a, a reminder to think this is part of this longer kind of legacy of protection and, and trying to work to, to sort ecosystem. Yeah, they happen so quickly and move so fast. You know, it, it's uh, just, you know, it's really in your face, you know. And I think, um, Clay, you bring up a really good point that, you know, we've had so many threats knocking on the door for so long that that, you know, we forget <laughs> that invasive species are the top priority for us. And it might not be as, as you say, Bob, in your face, but they are certainly dramatic. Maybe if we think of it as holding the line, as Pat Biley would always talk with regard to invasive species, that we're buying ourselves time for another tool. That is what gives me hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think also it's just a reminder that it's sort of on everybody's shoulders, right? Fire is like this perfect example of like, well, this is a societal level problem. It's not just one bad actor or, you know, I've had some people call me like raving and raging, especially from Maui. This often I'll get calls where they'll, I've had a several where they're ready to go to some community meeting and then, you know, just scream and rail at, at well, usually it's the power companies, right, that they're trying to blame. But and I'm always have to remind them, but, you know, we've got this other issue that it's thousands of acres of grassland and these fuels and, you know, this is sort of a bigger picture problem. Um, and so, you know, in the sense that it makes it overwhelming, but it also, I think, reinforces this idea that you know, as a community or as a society, there are these uh, actions that we need to sort of take much more holistically. You know, if, if it is the ecosystem that you value and maybe in those instances, it's your home that you value. But either way that it's connected, right? Like this sort of caring, it's all interconnected and fires like you know, that's just like an immediate example of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I had a house next door to me go up in flames and it was just like a couple hundred feet from my house, you know, and this two story house just in fully, fully engulfed, you know, it's, it's really traumatic, you know, for me as a neighbor, but for the owner of the house, you know, it's hard to even fathom how traumatic that is. Yeah. So, Bob, um, we're talking about fire. We've covered invasive species. I feel like you have said education is the key. Are there other things that we can do as, you know, future stewards, people coming up? You know, maybe they don't have the university degree or but they like to be outside. What can we tell those folks about caring for the land? Like I said before, education and mentoring. I think mentoring is a big deal. The Hawaiian community has it's really uh, stepped up more to uh, a broader appreciation of, of the resources out there, not just the uh, crops that they may grow, you know, their, their taro and, and trees and things that they might But there's more and more people that are going out and learning um, all about the stuff that's out there. And they have this feeling inside to appreciate those things. And uh, more and more people getting that feeling makes a big difference. Speaking of Native Hawaiians, when you were on Lanai, 
Um, were there Hawaiians that you met there or otherwise that really influenced your... Yeah, very much. Some of these uh, kupuna that have been born and raised over there um, had seen a lot of changes and uh, things, but they still remembered the old ways and uh, they understood the balances that go on in nature. And one of the things that I, I wanted to say about their um, perception and philosophy was a lot of these things that the Hawaiians did in the old days, their concept of conserving resources, you know, like if there was a, a fish species that was being depleted by overfishing, they'd put a kapu on it and they'd shut it down. It wouldn't open up until things had gotten back more normal again. You know, I look at that kind of concept, I see it working better than what we do <laughs> in some ways, you know. We don't have the authority to uh, address some of these things. Um, in the Hawaiian culture, the land was split up into different mokus. And then within that, there were the ahupua'a. And the people on the ahupua'a were residing in that area. And they were intimately knowledgeable about what was there, whether it was in the ocean or on the land. And they could see something that was, that was a problem or going wrong, and they could address locally. In Hawaii, we have in our system, the, the state system, they don't have that, that kind of on-the-land authority and capability to deal with stuff. You know, like people can come in from other islands and hunt in your, in your forest. And in fact, people from the mainland can come in and, you know, if they have a license, they can go in and hunt. That's not a Hawaiian philosophy. <laughs> that was uh, these resources are our resources and we manage those resources and uh, we don't want people coming in and messing it up for us. And sometimes out in places like Tana and Kipahulu, the, the locals get very upset when people are coming in and taking uh, opihi and fishing and stuff in their area and then taking it out and selling it somewhere. You know? uh, that, that's not the way they, they think or operate, you know. So. There's a lot to learn, Bob. I was just remembering when you were talking about old ways of doing things when you and I, Mahilani, back in the early mid-90s maybe. This was when we all went down to Kanayo Beach and we were looking at the southern tip of East Maui. Super dry, all like recent lava flows and, you know, kipukas of Ali'i and native plants kind of preserved, but all the old fishing villages. We went down there and uh, we found one of the Ahupua'a boundary markers and there was something else in all of the old walls and the villages are, you know, that the goats haven't destroyed are still around. And I remember I remarked on something and thinking it was an old Hawaiian hale or whatever. And you said, oh, no, that's like 10 years ago. And, <laughs> and I'll never forget because you said, oh, I just burst your bubble. I mean, someone like me, you know, who thought everything, who just doesn't have the understanding that someone like you, you know, with many decades um, and knowing the land and knowing, you know, what's from before versus what's now is so important. And it was a reminder, and this is why we're doing this right now, to capture um, as much as we can. And, and speaking to the old ways, is there, and I've asked this of other people too, is there a place you'd ever want to go back to, uh, to meet any person? And, and if that, is, or be in any particular area, and if, if so, what would that look like? 
You know, I haven't really thought of that um, alive connection, you know, but there's, there's records, you know, and there's a lot of documentation that, you know, where people were coming from and what they were thinking and what they were doing. And, you know, I always uh, hung around people that knew stuff. I was in, into plants, but I had some very good friends that were ornithologists and some friends that were uh, malacologists and uh, insects, you know, like that. And I just try to learn from them because that gives you a more holistic look of what that whole environment is like. did a study back in the 80s on uh, the pollination of native plants in the hibiscus family. I never published it. But, uh, I learned so much about what pollinated the different types of uh, hibiscuses and ibutilons and coquillas and hibiscadelphuses and the elimas. The more I learned about it, the more I understood the, uh, the complexity of it all and uh, how it all worked together. You know? When we think about all of these birds that are gone and, you know, that would have been the pollinators for the hibiscuses and other things, they're in your living, waking imagination as you're thinking about them. Is that what I'm hearing? Like they're with you, these things that are gone as you're thinking through what it must have looked like. Yeah, you know, you kind of wish you could go back uh, a couple hundred years or even longer and see what was there originally. You know, a lot of this stuff survived the occupation of the Hawaiians for over a thousand years, and they're still there. And then just within a couple hundred years, we've lost most of it, you know. They they didn't have those impacts, and they they understood the the need to... uh, take care of those things. They didn't destroy the land. We're just all thinking about that. <laughs> that Clay, did you have something you wanted to ask? Well, it's kind of backing, backing towards it. I was thinking about that kind of relationship between autonomy, right, that you spoke of and the imposition of sort of a state agency, right? It's so interesting. You know, I've, I've been to many places in the Pacific, all around the Pacific Rim, um, South America, Central America, Micronesia, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia, you know, and all these places. And everywhere I go, I see things that are related in some way to what we have in Hawaii um, and other things in general that we have that occur in these other places around the Pacific. And and that kind of knowledge gives me a a better picture of of what we've got and how we fit into all of that. It's very interesting to see the cultural differences too in uh, Rarotonga in the Cook Islands. And uh, they have a kapu system in place still for fishing, you know, like they had a section of the coastline that they wanted to protect till it could recover. And so they said, well, we stick this dead coconut leaf in the sand, standing up like a flag, and another one at the other end. And nobody can fish in there during that, that period that they close it. And somebody from Hawaii enforcement said, how do you enforce that? And the lady that was giving the talk said, shame, there's acceptance of that and to, to violate that brings great shame on you. And uh, that was a deterrent, you know, and the guy that was in enforcement in Hawaii is going, how the heck am I going to work that here? You know, but, you know, some of these places, they, they still have their uh, their systems in place. It was very interesting. Yeah. And so in that regard, it is a little bit of time travel um, where cultures are intact and communities are still as maybe not exactly what they were before, but retained 
and you know that relationship among elders and among different people. I was just going to say real quick, it reminds me of um, some colleagues on Guam, right, who are trying to now kind of move away from sort of state efforts to like state tree plantations, reforestation, and really get them to be community-based. The reason being that, you know, when they do get fires, this is the kind of perennial problem in Guam is these savannas and people want to reforest areas, but then they burn because there's all this grass out there. And so that approach more recently has been, let's start these community-based forestry projects so that when the plantation burns, they're going to be at the at the community meeting and everybody's there. And, you know, and it's my, uh, they'll, they'll talk about the kids kind of like pointing at their uncles in the back, <laughs> like if the, you know, who started the fire, you know, because it's really tied to hunting and, and it's a kind of a long-standing practice there. And so trying to kind of, again, change values and there's an interesting aspect to that where you sort of are kind of hearkening back to more you know some social relationships right that really drive what folks consider okay to do and what not to do um, and so much of that obviously has been eroded everywhere in the world I mean and that's you know, yeah. having that as a whole other conversation potentially maybe not to get into today but I know uh, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, people have grasses and weeds along the road and they just light it up and they just let it burn, whatever it's going to burn, you know, and, uh, you know, that that's not acceptable here. You know? um, but, you know, in really dry years, they have these little fires that just take off and then they, they join each other and they just turn into these huge conflagrations. One year they had... Eight million acres in Borneo that, that burned one one season. It's just hard to fathom how people don't get it. You know. Yeah. Again, coming from sort of very different cultural histories, cultural uses, and comfort with fire, but then entering, I think, new situations, right? Socioeconomic context now, and especially climate change. Yeah, one of those brush fires you might set on the side of the road that on a normal year could just kind of extinguish itself at the edge of the forest. I mean, we see that a lot, especially in Western um, Western Pacific Islands where fire will just go out. It's that forest edge. But if that's during an El Nino year that hits that forest edge, it's going to burn right through. It's just, I think, trying to balance what folks consider normal stuff with kind of changing conditions. Uh, you talk about that fire in Molokai burning 10% of the island, and that's kind of like a bad fire year in Guam. And so they, they are certainly have their hands full of fires. And then how do you bring it back? Because as you also said, so many of our fires are human caused. So that does give you some optimism that you could, through education, try to make a dent at. But I, I think I get overwhelmed personally with just trying to explain the value, trying to explain an average person. I know you talked about this already, but like, why does this work need to get done? You know, and I think, and especially the context of the cost and investment, and I think it's pretty easy to make the case for Hawaii, at least when you look at the state budget and how much goes to conservation, you know, the fact that a lot of the invasive species committees that you'd mentioned, they're all on grant funding. Watershed partnerships are all on grant funding. Like the fact that we really do invest so little seems to me requires a bigger, better way to explain the value of these things to the general public here. Oh, lack of funding indicates uh, a lack of knowledge and concern. Yeah, well, but well, but <laughs> exactly. It's the, it's the reflection of, of values, as you said, Bob. And there's so much that we have so much work ahead of us. Right. I mean, to reconnect with what's been lost. I, I think about how you said that Hawaiians were certainly in every place you've ever been, even, you know, the, up in the bogs and how much of that connection. I, I think about this a lot, too, is lost. Like how much we. <laughs> 
lost from the records or from the oral histories. And not that we would get go back to that per se, because moving forward, we have to think about a new paradigm, but reestablishing what something based on that might look like relationally, right? Because ultimately it's about how we all relate to these places that we care about and whether that's a cerebral relationship and or a heart relationship. And hopefully it's both. And that's what we're looking to explore in this this radio program, which you've helped us do. <laughs> yeah, big time. I think it's like there's just so much value in, in hearing these stories. You know, we think about having that connection like you have this lineage going back, working in an organization like Division of Forestry and Wildlife, where you have, you know, you're overlapping careers with folks that were there essentially and influenced by folks from the beginning. And I think it's pretty easy to kind of come into the field conservation and otherwise here and just sort of not really appreciate maybe you'd appreciate it but not really understand just kind of how far back folks have been working that you know it's easy to think of these as sort of new problems uh, so yeah really appreciate you sharing your your perspective and thoughts on all of this uh, my last question for you bob would be what do you have to say for the the new people the new stewards of the land you know anywhere really it doesn't have to be hawaii it could be any place what advice do you have for the next folks coming up i think learning is so important and uh, um, having a mentor. I like to tell people that when you're out in the back country somewhere, see what you're looking at. You know, it's observed. That's that's something I, I've tried to do my whole life is observe, learn by observation uh, and try to understand what's going on out there. You know, uh, getting a holistic picture of things. It's just taking it personally. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's all about. Hey, these like your, your, you know, our personal connection to these these places that kind of you form these relationships. And I think it goes back to what Melissa was saying. The kind of idea behind this uh, this program is think about and hear from folks who have had these long long lasting connections that have really influenced their career. And is there something you wish you really knew about the natural world? Is there something? Is there one thing? It could be super specific, like how does this pollinator relate to that plant and whatever. Is there a mystery that just bothers you that you think about <laughs> and want to know the answer to? I was down at the botanical garden in Kahului. That's when Rennie Silva was still there. And we had a hibiscus waimea plant there. And this was during the summertime. And this thing was just covered with white flowers. And I looked at this thing. And I said, this plant is putting out a huge amount of, of life force to create all these flowers, you know. And I, I couldn't imagine that all those flowers were all just from one day because most hibiscus open in the morning and close in the evening. And that's the end. So what I did was I got some pieces of string and I wrapped them around um, some buds that looked like they were just about ready to open. Just put the string around it so I could go back to it and make sure I had the right one. And it turned out that those flowers were lasting two days, not one day. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. And then I started studying the other white species, the Molokai one and the, the Oahu one. And I found out that the Molokai one only opened for one day and the Oahu one opened for a day and a half. And the Kauai one was a two-day flower. And I was going, there's stuff going on here, you know, and I wanted to understand it. And so I started to expand it to the other native species. And then I made a connection with a couple at University of California in Berkeley that were studying the pollinators of flowers. 
They sent me a, a little packet of stuff where I could collect the nectar of these things and they would analyze it for me. And, and so I, I did that and I sent them these little collections. I put the nectar on the paper and it dried there, but the chemicals in it was still there. And they analyzed it and they came up with a whole bunch of information about, about these flowers and, and what the pollinators were likely for these flowers. I just kept expanding and expanding. I wanted to learn more. I ended up studying all of the uh, native hibiscus family things in Hawaii and understanding their, their pollinators and the, the nectar and what was in it, you know, the amino acids and the sugars and everything. And uh, it's just a personal interest to go in and, and uh, take the time to, to learn something, you know, but I, it was so rewarding. Did you discover why one hibiscus was open for a couple days and the other one's open for one? Was there I, any? I don't know why, um, <laughs> but, but I knew that, for instance, on the hibiscus waimei, the flower will open on the first morning and has this big uh, pistol with all the anthers on it. And the anthers do not open until the second day. But the uh, stigma is, is actually functional from the first day. And so this shows that the tree has developed a way to outcross, you know, so that those that flower won't get the pollen from itself onto the stigma. It would have to be from a different flower, you know, so it, it develops, you know, the, the complexity of things. Just <laughs> It's astonishing. I yeah. mean, everything you're describing is, is a reminder of how complex our natural world really is and how, how mm-hmm. much we know, which is this much sometimes. So the, the white-flowered ones were pollinators or uh, hawk moths, this big hummingbird-like hawk moths, and hibiscus brachynridgii. The yellow one has very short styles and has a completely different nectar and, and uh, scent and everything. And little beetles go on that one and pollinate it. And the red-flowered ones are pollinated by birds. Some of the little things like the abutilons and the elima were uh, the yellow-faced bees were pollinating those, you know, so that's, that's another level of complexity. <laughs> so true. Well, Bob, you've been amazing um, to listen to and uh, I couldn't have imagined a more incredible first guest of ours. I'm a little speechless with everything you've talked about. Clay, do you have anything you want to say? No, not, not nothing more than just thank you for that. I, I agree. It was just so perfect to kind of get that breath. Again, I love the historical perspective. I think this is sort of really, really important to, to just capture that. Again, we don't take the time or get the opportunities all that often to just chat about this stuff and, and learn. So I, thanks so much for, uh, for agreeing to do this with us. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. I try to pass on information and knowledge as best I can. One of the things I found out fairly early was if you were at the University of Hawaii and you were working on a project for your thesis and somebody asked you questions about what you were finding, that they would tend not to want to tell you anything because they, they wouldn't want them to blow their the, the interest. <laughs> so it wasn't wouldn't be until after they had actually published their, their findings that they would be able to share it, you know, but I've, I've never had a degree in any of this stuff. And uh, I share as much as I can to anybody who's interested. I'm not a, a botanist. I'm more of a naturalist. I think uh, plants were how I got started, but uh, the holistic picture is, is what's really driving me. Thank you so very much. We've totally enjoyed it. 